Please remain standing if you are standing at home and if you're standing here and pray with me. Almighty God, we do pray that even in this unusual circumstance of proclaiming the good news about Jesus Christ, with few in this uh, church building and perhaps many watching online, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would transcend our limitations and that you would have mercy upon us and meet us in the preaching and teaching of your word, even as your body is scattered in many places this morning. I pray, Lord, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. You may be seated. Well, this really is uh, weird for me. In a, we're in a new venture here, beginning a new venture. I've, uh, I don't think I've ever preached uh, to a completely r empty room before. It's not almost completely empty, but it's getting there. And uh, although I have preached to a room where a lot of people were asleep before, so that's not unusual. Um, this is the first time that Christ Church has ever streamed a service online. And so it is not unlikely that there will be technical glitches as we get started. Uh, if that happens, please be patient with us. Um, be kind to us as we seek to troubleshoot so that we can have an even more connected uh, service of worship next week. And like I said, this, this does seem odd to me. I've never preached in a setting like this. But most of all, I do want to emphasize that this, what we're doing this morning is an extraordinary circumstance. So please do not think that gathering for worship online is in any way equivalent to gathering together in person as the body of Christ. The very heart of the Christian faith is the belief in what we call the incarnation. In other words, that Jesus Christ, in Jesus Christ, the almighty, everlasting creator God of the universe took on a human body and became physically present and entered into his creation. So our salvation hangs on the truth that God became physically present to redeem the world. And that indicates to us just how high a value God places on being physically present. So while this is a, an, ex, uh, an expediency, for this morning, it certainly isn't something we should see as normal. Or to see the virtual church as being something we should celebrate as being a good is actually to kind of slide into that heresy of Gnosticism. Gnosticism, which rejects the goodness and the importance of the physical world and the human body. And in fact, we're going to deal with the importance of the human body in the course of exploring this passage we heard read this morning in Ephesians chapter 5. And so I would encourage you, if you have your Bible there with you at home or here in the church building, please turn to Ephesians chapter 5 with me, and we're going to begin to, to get into this passage of Scripture. Now, while we're gathering online, it may not be optimal, but it certainly is superior to not gathering at all. And through our life groups and through our evening prayer services, Beginning this week, especially the evening prayer this week, we will still be gathering in groups of 10 or less in order to receive Holy Communion from the bread that we bless this morning. So that will still be available. Also, uh, please keep checking our website and our Facebook page for updates. Uh, next week, we're going to, when I say website, 
our, our AV person is going to know to flash a big uh, printout of the, uh, the address, but it's ChristChurchWS.org, and we'll put that up on the, on the back wall there next time I mention that. So here, uh, here we are in the fourth Sunday of Lent, and we are in the midst of a plague, uh, a pandemic that has taken the world by its collective shoulders and has shaken us, reminding us that we are not in ultimate control of our destinies and that we are all mortal. Death is a reality for all of us and we are being reminded of that right now. In other words, our current world situation with its emphasis on the fact that we are not in ultimate control, that we do have to face our mortality, resonates deeply with the season of the Christian year that we find ourselves in this moment. We are in the season of what we call Lent. Lent is the season of the Christian year in which we prepare for the celebration of Jesus' resurrection on Easter Sunday. And we do it by taking stock of our walk with the Lord. You know, we began this season of Lent with, the, uh, with, uh, with Ash Wednesday. And on Ash Wednesday, people came forward and one of the ministers smeared ashes in the sign of a cross on their foreheads with the words, Remember that you are dust, and to dust you will return. We are being reminded through this COVID-19 pestilence that we are indeed dust, and to dust we will return. So Lent is a time to renew our posture of repentance as we consider our mortality, as we consider the fact that we're not ultimately in control. We are reminded to be in a posture of repentance for sin and that we should be seeking to press into and embrace even more deeply our Lord Jesus Christ. We do this through uh, many ways, but there are the biblical spiritual disciplines of prayer, so prayer is central to Lent, fasting, self-denial. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him take up his cross, deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And through generosity, through almsgivings, through giving away of our material resources to others. And what, what, part of what comes up in the readings for today has to do, from these Lenten readings, readings for today, has to do with the Christian ethic, the Christian ethic, how we actually live our lives. Now, we all know that we are saved by God's grace and we are kept by God's grace. And in fact, in the very book that we just read from this morning, Ephesians, back in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, we have perhaps the clearest, clearest statement of our salvation by grace alone. But the Bible is clear. The Bible is clear that the person who has genuinely been, been transformed by Jesus Christ demonstrates that transformation and how we live out our daily life, our Christian lives. And that's what we hear from Paul's letter to the Ephesians today. So Ephesians chapter 1, here's, I mean, chapter 5, Ephesians 5, verse 1. Here is the big idea for the Christian way of life from Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1. Listen to what it says. Therefore, be imitators, be imitators of God as beloved children. And then verse 2, and walk in love. Be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. 
So here it is. The key to the Christian way of life is to imitate God. And then Paul points to Jesus as the model that we are to imitate. In other words, imitate God, and God has revealed himself in Jesus Christ. So, if you're following this argument, the goal of the Christian life, the goal of being a disciple, is ultimately to be like Jesus. And we hear that over and over and over again in the New Testament. Romans chapter 8, verse 29, Romans 8, 29, this is what Paul says in that letter, for those who God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, to be conformed to the image of his Son. The goal of the Christian life is to be like Jesus. And again, John in 1 John chapter 3, 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he, Christ, appears, what does it say? We shall be like him. We shall be like him. And just uh, with the taking the peril of redundancy upon myself, let me go to 2 Corinthians. I love this passage in 2 Corinthians 3, beginning at verse 17. Paul writes to the Corinthian church, Now this, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And then he says this, And we all, believers, with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, here it is, are being transformed into the same image. What image? The image of Christ. We're being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. And finally, Peter. So all, everybody, just about everybody writing in the New Testament. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. And again, a very key verse, a key verse for us uh, in our theology as believers. But for me personally, Peter writes, His divine power has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises. Here it is, listen. So that through him, hear it, so that through, so, excuse me, through those promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. Do you hear all that re-emphasizing of being made like God in Christ, imitators of God? And in the early church, a popular illustration of being made like Jesus, of being made like Christ, of becoming like God through grace is the, is the analogy of like iron placed in a fireplace or a sword thrust into a, a, a forge or something like that. They would use the sword. I'm going to use an iron poker. I don't have a sword handy, but we do usually have, a, if you have a fireplace in your home, you probably have a poker. So if I take an iron poker and put it into a fire, does it stop being an iron poker? No. Its essence remains being an iron poker. But by, listen, participating in the fire, by being in con connection to the fire, by being in the fire, it begins to take on the attributes of the fire so that that poker becomes bright and it glows like fire. It produces heat. You can take it out of the fire and it's hot. You would not want to touch it. 
like fire, it's hot. And in, in fact, if you touch it to something else af, uh, that's flammable after being in the fire, just go back to uh, like the first scene in the uh, Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark, and they're in Nepal, and that, you know, the bad guy takes the iron poker and he's going to use somebody, you're going to try to uh, hurt somebody with a hot poker, and he touches the, the drapes in that room and they burst into flames. While you're at home and you're streaming Netflix this week, isolated, you can go back and review this as an analogy. So that it actually can cause other things to combust just like fire. Well, friends, that's what God wants to do with us as followers of Jesus by participating in the life of God, by following Christ closely and attending to the means of grace like Bible reading and prayer and giving and receiving the Lord's Supper, we begin to take on the attributes of Christ. Okay, so what does that look like exactly? Well, Paul says, to walk in love as Christ loved us. You know, for most people, for most people, love is a concept, or it's a feeling, or maybe if we're, if we're really smart, it's a philosophy. Yet, according to the witness of the scriptures, love is not an abstract idea. For Christians, love is not an idea. Love is a person. Love is a person. Christians are the ones who say God is love. Not just that God has love, but that God is love. The nature and character of Jesus Christ, who is God in flesh, define love for us. And the love we know in Jesus is one that always seeks the good of the beloved, even when that good of the beloved is at odds with the lover's own desires and comforts and appetites and needs. So it puts the beloved first, even at the expense of its own appetites, comforts, and needs. And in some degree, this is one of the reasons why you're watching this online this morning, because I would much prefer to be in a church full of other people breathing their germs, but in love for for one another, we have laid aside the, the wonderful gift and privilege of gathering together uh, closely as the body of Christ so that our proximity does not serve as a means of spreading a communicable disease that's very, very serious. You see, love does not seek its own happiness, but the happiness of the beloved. Jesus says, he gave himself up for us. And again, if we were to go back to 1 John, we've used that scripture, those scriptures from that little letter of 1 John's already, 1 John already this morning. But 1 John chapter 3, verse 16, it says this, This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. So again, in this particular time, of pestilence in our, around the world, we need to be thinking, okay, Lord, by your grace, how am I to lay down my life in love for someone else to put others' needs before my own? So to imitate God is to walk in love. C.S. Lewis wrote in his work, The Four Loves, he wrote this, God who needs nothing loves into existence wholly 
He loves into existence holy superfluous creatures in order that He may love and perfect them. He creates the universe. God creates the universe already foreseeing the buzzing cloud of flies about the cross. The flayed back pressed against the uneven stake. The nails driven through the mesial nerves. The repeated incipient suffocation as the body droops. The repeated torture of back and arms as it is time after time for breath's sake hitched up. Herein is love. This is the diagram of love himself, the inventor of all loves. Jesus Christ laid his life down for us. And then Paul gives us the opposite of what that love looks like. He gives us the opposite of what that love looks like. What does it look like to walk in love? It looks like Jesus. What is the opposite of walking in love? What is the opposite of imitating God? Well, Paul goes on in verse 3. So we've just heard verses 1 and 2, and immediately into verse 3, this is what Paul says. But, however, sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness, don't be coveting thy neighbor's toilet paper or thy neighbor's hand sanitizer, But sexual immorality and all impurity and covetousness must not even be named, named among you, as is proper among saints. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of God and Christ. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. So we're going to kind of dwell on this for a little bit because I think it's essential and it goes back to what we were talking about at the very beginning of this sermon about the importance of the human body, how critical that is to Christian theology. So what is sexual immorality? It says here that sexual immorality is the opposite of walking in love. Paul says, walk in love like Jesus and then he gives us the opposite. So sexual immorality is the opposite of walking in love. What is sexual immorality? Well, Jesus himself, our Lord Jesus Christ himself, in Matthew 19, verses 4 through 6, he defined the only appropriate sphere for the expression of the gift of human sexuality. And that is in a lifelong covenant between a man and a woman in marriage. That is the proper context. So... Sexual immorality or sexual impurity is anything that is not consonant with that. And, there, and, and, and therefore, based on the scriptures themselves, such things are the opposite of walking in love. In fact, Paul says these things, and listen, these things because those who practice them desire them more than God, want them more than God, this is idolatry, it is a form of idolatry. And as we know, an idol is anything that I am more devoted to than God. Idol worshipers have no place in God's kingdom because they are committed to a different God. And they belong to that kingdom. Now, all of us are sexually broken. All of us, and how many people is in the set of all? It means all. 
All of us are sexually broken because of the fall. In other words, of, our, of the primordial rebellion of man and woman in the Garden of Eden against their loving creator, because of the consequences of that rebellion, we are all marred by the fall, and we are all prone to stumble in the area of sexuality. The more necessary the God-given impulse and appetite and desire, the more dramatic its perversion by the twisting of the fall. So it can be the same thing is true of our physical appetites for food and drink. But thanks be to God, if we do fall in this area, if we're not consistent, and most of us aren't, we repent. We can repent and seek God's forgiveness. And then God graciously and mercifully restores us. I often tell people that Christians are pretty horrible at, <laughs> at keeping this part of the Christian life. However, however, if you are living, and this is based on Scripture, if you are living, if I am living, if we are living in unrepentant sexual immorality, self-justifying sexual immorality, then if we are in unrepentant rebellion against God, then of course by definition we're not genuinely followers of Jesus Christ. That's not judgmental or pejorative. That's just the law of non-contradiction. And we need to talk about this because Christians and perhaps some of you are listening or watching this morning are thinking this, Christians are routinely accused of being obsessed with sexual sin. Why don't you care more about hunger and injustice? Why are you always yammering about sex? By the way, if you think we should be, why weren't you here helping out with the food pantry yesterday? Why are you always yammering on about sex? Well, this actually may be an accurate critique for some people. But here's what's really going on, okay? We are not the ones driving the conversation in our society about sex at this present time. And on this point, Yuval Levin writes, listen, please listen to this illustration. Religious traditionalists today can seem obsessed with sex for the same reason that someone just poked in the eye can't seem to change the subject. They are being attacked on a particular front and are struggling to defend themselves. They are not the ones who made sexuality the, the center of the culture wars. Social progressives have, for the most part, picked these fights because orthodox views about sexual morality, which insist on fundamental limits to the scope of personal choice, strike them as, listen, perhaps you feel this way, uniquely oppressive and backwards, and they cannot abide their persistence. So here, let me give you the reason why this is important to us as believers. Here's why Orthodox Christians governed by Scripture cannot condone sexual immorality. It has to do with the fact that we believe that the human body, the body itself, is sacred and is essential to being a human person. The Christian faith has always taught, always taught, that the body is good, and not just good, it is eternally significant. The human body means something. The body isn't just random accumulation of molecules and systems of respiration and circulation and nervous systems. No, the body itself 
has a meaning. And the sexual union of a man and a woman in the covenant of marriage are an icon, an image that points us to God's love and ultimate purpose for His creation. That's what Christianity teaches, and that's why we are very, very concerned on these issues. Now, to the contrary, many secularists who have a much lower view of the worth of the human body uh, are, are so uh, dis dismissive of the body so that the grand dream of some people, some people in Silicon Valley, and by the way, I'm a huge fan of science fiction. This has been a recent trope in science fiction that I have uh, been reading. Actually, just, just the other day I read a book that contained this as a, as a theme. But the grand dream of some people is transhumanism, that somehow we can transcend this sack of meat that is the body and upload our consciousness to a new cybernetic reality. Christians would think, traditionally, that at that point you have rejected your humanity. See, if you've ever said that your body is not the real you, that it is the prison house of the soul, that's not biblical Christianity. People's attitudes about the goodness and importance of the body are often revealed on what, what we, we think about what should happen after to this body after we die. You see, we believe that God intentionally created us. Listen, this is, this is an important point. God intentionally created us as spiritual, physical totalities. Physical, spiritual totalities. And ironically, it was one of my favorite curmudgeonly atheists, the late Christopher Hitchens, who nailed the Christian view. He got it right when he said... I don't have a body. He said this as he was dying. I don't, have a, I don't have a body. I am a body. Christian, you are a body. So to be human is to be a body, not merely a spirit trapped in flesh. We are a unity of body and spirit. So listen, your body is the real you, just as much as your spirit is the real you. And they were never meant to be separated. You are your body, and that is why death, which severs the body and the soul, is such a violation of God's intention for His human creation. That's why the biblical doctrine of the physical resurrection of the body, it's a glorified body, not the same body that's subject to corruption and death, but a real physical, tangible resurrection body. The resurrection body is a core non-negotiable teaching of Christianity, and that is why Easter is such a big deal. So, we think the body is good and holy and amazing because God himself put on a real physical human body when he came to us in Jesus Christ. And God in Christ, literally, physically, not just in somebody's heart and mind or imagination, but literally and physically rose from the dead in that glorified human body and has ascended into heaven. And in that body, he reigns over the universe for all eternity in his risen body. That's why Christians care about this stuff. So yes, we are obsessed with the body because everything we do in it, in this body is directly related to God and thus has eternal significance, including how we use the gift of human sexuality. So to misuse the body is to misuse our humanity, and that brings the judgment of God. 
And as Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 2 Corinthians 5 verse 10, For we all must appear, all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Now I have to harp on this today because Paul says, Paul says in verse 6, that there are those inside the Christian community that seek to deceive us with empty words. And boy, that has not changed at all. Finally, Paul says to walk in the light. Verse 8, For at one time you were darkness, and now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. Light is revealing. To be in the light is to be revealed. It means it is to be seen. It is the light. It is in the light that we see what is good and right and true and beautiful. We see the good, the true, the beautiful through the light. Light has a disinfectant quality. As a matter of fact, uh, you, uh, I think UV light is still used to this day in barber shops to, to disinfect uh, barber utensils. I'm sure that's not nearly clean enough anymore in the time of coronavirus. But light does have the power to disinfect and clean. Darkness, on the other hand, is to hide and turn away from God. It is we, and we often cover the, ourselves in the darkness of self-justification of giving a litany of reasons for our rebellion against God and turning away from God. And what we are doing is we're creating a dark little closet to hide in. In fact, it seems that often when we choose to walk in darkness, self-justification becomes an all-consuming project in our lives. As we seek to guard the darkness that we love, we create elaborate narratives of self-justification. And ultimately, though, the darkness may make promises to us, but it can never fulfill them. And this is why we all need, listen, this is why we all need accountability in the body of Christ. I need it, and you need it. We, and we have seen over and over and over again, and unfortunately, in the lives of leaders in the church, uh, ordained people in the church, lay leaders, uh, very high visibility lay leaders, apologists, and all those kind of folks. We've seen this in the church. When there is no accountability, there, there is the potential of being swallowed by a self-justifying darkness that not only, not only destroys us personally, but it negates the validity of the testimony of me as a person and of the church in general if I am a leader. We, we have to have accountability, and we have to have church discipline. Accountability and the discipline of the church are perhaps the most effective means of shining the light on the dark places of our lives. So let me ask you, brother or sister, do you have an accountability partner? I do. I've had one for years who knows me inside and out uh, and, <laughs> and still wants to be my accountability partner after all these years. You know, historically, the Anglican church has taught, as in the book of the Elizabethan homilies, that there are three marks, this is really cool, this cool Anglican stuff, we don't have a lot of cool Anglican stuff, but this is one of them. 
There are three marks of the true church. Faithful preaching of the word. Isn't that wonderful? Faithful administration of the sacraments. And then listen, faithful exercise of church discipline. So here's what it says in the Elizabethan homilies, on the, uh, the homily on concerning the coming down of the Holy Ghost. The writer of the homily says, The true church hath always three notes or marks whereby it is known. Pure and sound doctrine, the sacraments ministered according to Christ's holy institution, and the right use of ecclesiastical, in other words, churchly, discipline. This description of the church is agreeable both to the scriptures of God and also to the doctrine of the ancient fathers, so that none may justly find fault therein. So brothers and sisters, in this Lent, especially in this time of, of pestilence when we are facing many struggles, there are some things that we can do to shine the light. And so I want us to, to think about this. Would you please ask God to show you how to shine the light during Lent? One of the things you can do, and I want to encourage you to this, if you're watching online or if you're here in this building this morning, I want to encourage you as a spiritual discipline this Lent to meet with me or one of the other clergy at Christ Church, one of our other presbyters, our priests at Christ Church, in order to offer your, uh, your confession using the right of reconciliation of a penitent from the Book of Common Prayer 2019. Come and use that right of reconciliation and let the light shine into your dark places. You know, when we confess our sins to one another, to another believer, James says in James 5 verse 16 that God uses it to drive out the darkness and shine His healing and cleansing light into our lives. Therefore, confess your sins one to another that you might be healed. So you can give me a call or go online and use our contact form at the Christ Church website, excuse me, and you can set up a time for me or Father Shane or Father David to meet with you, and we can sit down together and let the light shine into places where the darkness is trying to overcome. So brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, let God's light shine into your life. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.